Good morning. Well, here we are in the first weekend of December, and you might imagine or be expecting that today we're going to begin a Christmas sermon series, but actually we're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of Luke. We'll actually be finishing it next week. It's amazing to think that we began this series back in August of 2019. So while the calendar today will tell you um, it's, you know, it's Christmas time, the sermon today is going to have a bit more of an Easter flavor to it. But this is entirely appropriate because after all, it is what happened on Easter with the resurrection of Jesus that makes Christmas matter. Because without what happened on Easter, Jesus simply would have been just another rabbi with a handful of followers in a backwoods Roman province who was tragically executed, just another dime a dozen failed messianic movement, and he wouldn't have even made the footnotes of history, and you never would have heard of him, and we certainly wouldn't be observing the day of his birth. But it is because of what happened on Easter, Christmas matters. And many artists throughout the centuries have taken the task of depicting several of the scenes of this very important weekend with the passion and the resurrection. One of the more well-known expressions comes from the imagination of Michelangelo with his Pieta. And if we have that slide, I think we have a picture of the Pieta. Here we have a statue of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and across her lap is the body of her crucified son. And as I look at a statue like this, this time of year, I can't help but think of certain song lyrics that, of a song that we sing during this season. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? This, this is Christ the King. Well, how do we know that baby is Christ the King? How do we know that this helpless, crucified martyr is Christ the King? Well, it's because of what happens after this with the resurrection. So Christmas tells us that Jesus came. Easter tells us why. But I have a a rhetorical question to pose to you. And that is, just as this baby Jesus to my, and this nativity scene to my right, just as he is the centerpiece of the nativity, what is the centerpiece of your life? What is central in your life? What is the thing that determines the way you think, the way you understand the world, and the way that you live? Certainly in a room like this, or for many watching online, you'd say something like, Jesus, the gospel, Christianity. But if you were to ask any random person you would meet on the sidewalk, what might they say? They might say something about their family, their career, their political ideologies, their personal philosophies. But let me ask you this. What sort of event would be required in order for you to change the centerpiece of your life? 
What sort of radical explosion would have to happen to, so that whatever is the center in your life changes? Or your understanding of the world changes? Well, the disciples experienced something like that with the resurrection. It changed how they thought, how they understood the world, and how they lived their lives. It truly was a paradigm shift. And if we try to explain the life change of the disciples apart from the resurrection, we may be putting our faith in some other amazing type of thing, but either way you go, it requires faith. Personally, I believe the resurrection is the best explanation. We today believe in the resurrection based on the testimony of the apostles. And today, we're going to look at how Jesus appeared to the apostles. So far, in Luke's final chapter here in 24, we saw that the women went and witnessed that the tomb was empty. And today, we'll read about how Jesus appeared to his disciples. But both of these facts are very important. They, they go together. Because if you have only one of them, say, if you only have the empty tomb but not the appearances, no one ever would have concluded resurrection. They might have thought it was strange that the tomb was empty, maybe a grave robber came or something, but they never would have thought resurrection. Likewise, the appearances by themselves without an empty tomb certainly doesn't mean resurrection because after all, if the body's still there, we don't have a resurrection and the movement doesn't stay off the ground for more than a half hour. But taken together, the empty tomb and the appearances to the disciples firmly ground the resurrection in history. So today we're going to read about this appearance in Luke chapter 24, and we'll read in verses 36 to 49. And I'm going to call Lisa to the stage. Lisa is part of our internship we have here called Form, and she's going to read for us starting in verse 36. Morning, Apex. Hope everyone's having a great Sunday. All right, so Jesus appears to his disciples. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See, my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveled, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness and sins should be proclaimed in the name of all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You are witness of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Thank you. There's one thing that we should not say as 21st century Westerners. 
we should not say, well, today we have science and we have our experiences and we know that people do not rise from the dead. So the disciples, you know, they lived a long time ago in an ancient culture with ancient beliefs. They didn't have science. So they were more, you know, prone or susceptible or gullible to believe in such a thing as resurrection. And that's how the belief in it came to spread. Well, we, we simply shouldn't say that because we clearly see it, it's not true. We, we read in the gospel accounts that the disciples were slow, were really hesitant to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. In fact, you know, Jesus told them a number of times, the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of sinners and he'll be crucified, but on the third day he will rise. He said this a number of times. And now, if the disciples believed him, and perhaps if, even if they understood him, you would expect that that Sunday morning they would have been waiting outside the tomb, perhaps with breakfast. Good morning, Jesus. We've been expecting you. Somebody grab some coffee for these Roman soldiers. It looks like they've had a long night. But they weren't there because they weren't expecting it. And they weren't expecting it for the same reasons that we wouldn't expect it, but they had an additional reason, a theological reason. You see, all Jews in the first century, except for the Sadducees, believed in what was called the resurrection of the dead. They would look at passages such as Daniel chapter 12, and they would see how it wrote about the resurrection of the righteous to everlasting life, and the resurrection of the wicked to everlasting contempt. But for them, resurrection was an event at the end of history for all people. Resurrection was an event at the end of this present age as God ushers in his new creation. So resurrection was the end of history for all people. What they didn't have a category for was one individual rising in the middle of history especially not someone who was crucified. Because as it says in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, cursed is the one who is hanged on a tree. You certainly wouldn't expect a person like that. A cursed person, a person out of favor with God, you certainly would be the last person you would expect to be resurrected, especially in the middle of history. So they weren't expecting it. But you might think, well, what about, you know, the, the, the stories from the Old Testament that they believe, like the, uh, when Elijah raised the son of the widow? Or weren't they there when Lazarus rose from the dead? It's a good question, but we realize that these, this is a separate category altogether. You could put this in the category of resuscitations, a reanimation of the body, but a body that would one day die again, perhaps years later. What Jesus did was something altogether different. Jesus was resurrected in a glorified body. As he says in Revelation chapter 1, I am the living one. I was dead, but now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. A glorified body that would never die again. There was clearly something different about the body of Jesus. Here it says, he appeared to them and they were startled. It's as if he appeared out of nowhere. The Gospel of John 
gives us an additional detail that the doors were locked. So what, is, is Jesus teleporting? I mean, is he, is he moving through walls? There's something different about the body of Jesus. And yet, there's something very much the same about the body of Jesus, something very familiar. There's lots of continuity there. As he says, look, you can hear me, you can see me, you can touch me. Look at my hands and my feet. Behold the scars where they put the nails. They could touch him, but they still had a hard time believing it. It was too good to be true. But Jesus goes a step further, and he asks them, do you have anything here to eat? They give him a piece of broiled fish, and he eats it in their presence. What's this doing in here? I mean, this is one of the most important moments in human history, and we're talking about what Jesus had for lunch. I mean, think about that in terms of American history. Does anyone in here know what Abraham Lincoln had for breakfast the day he signed the Emancipation Proclamation? I don't either, because no one bothered to write it down in the official documents. What sort of freeze-dried astronaut food did Neil Armstrong have before he walked on the moon? We don't know. They don't record that kind of thing in important history. But this is the most important history. What's this doing here? It seems so random. Well, I think a couple of things are going on here. First of all, this bears the marks of eyewitness testimony. Ancient people didn't write legends or fiction with this type of random detail. The fact that it was broiled fish and not fried fish, I mean, that, we get such, such specificity here that it bears the marks of eyewitness testimony. Secondly, though, Jesus here is showing them that it really is him by doing something that ghosts don't do. I'm not a ghost. I'm actually here. Watch this. He eats it in front of him. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a hallucination. If I was, the fish stays on the table. But just as we shouldn't say the disciples were just simply, they had the simplistic, superstitious thinking, they were more prone to believe in the resurrection. We also shouldn't say something that often gets repeated in more uh, circles that are more theologically liberal, where they say, you know, it wasn't a literal bodily, physical resurrection. But the disciples experienced such forgiveness that they sensed that he lived on in their hearts. So it was this spiritual, symbolic type of resurrection. Here's the deal. Christianity is not like Eastern philosophies that say this world is an illusion. And it's not like certain Greek philosophies like Platonism that says this world is a prison and our goal is to escape it and live as disembodied spirits. But Christianity says that God has made a good world that's been corrupted, but he's not giving up on it. He intends to heal it, to restore it. N.T. Wright says, if the Easter means that Jesus is only raised in the spiritual sense, then it's only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus is truly risen from the dead, then Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. Because God is not satisfied to let the world go on with injustice and violence and degradation. Easter means God has begun to do something about 
the fallen nature of this world. And he's inviting us to partner with him, restoring love and healing and justice to this world. So the disciples or the, the gospel writers, the New Testament authors, if, if they were here today, they would say, look, believe us or don't believe us. But don't put words in our mouth as if we meant this in a spiritual sense. Luke was very specific in showing a physical resurrection of Jesus. It's as it says in John's epistle in 1 John, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, that we have looked at, which our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. You see, Christianity... It's not just like, it's not like other religions. It's just about the philosophies, the ideas. It's not like a buffet where you can take what you like and leave what you don't like. It's making claims about history, things that have happened in space-time history. So we don't get to go through it as if it's a buffet of ideas and say, well, I like what Christianity has to say about grace and forgiveness, but I don't like what it says about money I don't like what it says about marriage and sexual ethics or self-denial. I'll leave those. Look, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, customize and do all you want. If it makes you feel good, it doesn't give you much assurance for eternity, though. But if Jesus is raised from the dead and you find yourself disagreeing with him, you'll find yourself going against the grain of reality. Leslie Newbigin was a um, British theologian. He was once in India, and he had a conversation with an educated Hindu scholar who said, I don't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us as if it's a book of religion. It's not a book of religion. Plus, we have plenty of books of religion. We don't need another one. He says, I find what, what's in the Bible is a unique interpretation of the history of the world, the history of the universe, and the history of humanity. There is nothing else in religious literature that we can put next to it. But speaking of the Bible, we, we see this, another paradigm shift for the disciples. We read in verse 44 when Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Now, this is the third time in this chapter that Luke has written something like this. This is what the, men, the two men in gleaming clothes said to the women. This is what Jesus said to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And now he's saying it to the disciples here. And Jesus is saying everything in the law of Moses, the, the prophets and the Psalms. This is a very Jewish way of talking about the Old Testament. So we have the, the law of Moses, which they called the Torah. The prophets, which they called the Nevi'im. And the Psalms, which here stands in for all the writings and all the w wisdom literature that they called the Ketuvim. And so they took the abbreviations of those words and made an acronym of TNK, the Tanakh, the Old Testament. What we call the Old Testament, the Jews called the Tanakh. And he says that the Tanakh says Messiah dies and rises again. 
So for here, he's offering the disciples a key which unlocks the Old Testament, a way to unlock the Tanakh. He offers them lenses through which they can now read the Old Testament. It's almost like movies with plot twist endings. Movies where something unexpected happens and it changes the entire meaning of the rest of the movie for you. You know, and you could really only watch this a number of times. You watch it the first time to experience the twist for the first time. You watch it again to catch what you didn't catch before with this new knowledge of how it ends. So we say to ourselves, Bruce Willis was dead the whole time? That changes the meaning of that scene. Wait, that's the Statue of Liberty. Charlton Heston was on planet Earth the whole time? Orson Welles was talking about his childhood sled? Brad Pitt was a figment of Edward Norton's imagination? It changes the whole meaning of the movies. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And here, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate plot twist. It's the thing that now they would reinterpret the whole Old Testament. And so he says that as it is written, the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. You won't find that exact sentence in the Old Testament. That that verse, you just won't find it. But it seems what he's doing here is saying that the entire sweep of redemptive history, all of these themes, all of these threads converge to one point, and that is Jesus and his death and resurrection. So all these themes like covenant and kingdom and temple and sacrifice and atonement and blessing and curse and exodus and exile and the offices of prophet, priest, and king, they all converge to a single point. That's Jesus and his death and resurrection. And as you know, Mike pointed out last week, there's, there's these types, there's these things that once you know the story of Jesus, you can't not read the text any other way. And so we have the, you know, the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. We have the offspring of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. We have stories like Abraham and Isaac where a father takes his beloved son up a mountain to offer him as a sacrifice, showing his trust in the faithfulness of God. But God there stops him and provides a substitute. But in the story of Jesus, he is the beloved son, but he's also the substitute. Or think about the story of Joseph. A beloved son is betrayed by his brothers, put into a pit, sold into slavery for 30 units of silver. But in spite of his sufferings, he comes out on the other side of it with authority and power. And so that what his brothers intended for evil, God meant for good in the saving of many lives. Does that story sound familiar? Or take a story like King David. You know, of course, Jesus is called the son of David, the the king who is to come from David's line. But think of the early stories of David after Samuel anoints him as king, Israel faced a problem, and that problem was a nine-foot giant named Goliath. And David was the only one willing to fight Goliath, and he took the sling and the stone, and he slayed Goliath. But you know who benefited from it? Everyone in Israel. So we have this king who fights a giant, and his victory is imputed to people, though they 
didn't lift a finger to do anything for themselves. And in the same way, Jesus fights the real giants of our lives of sin and death. And his victory is imputed to us in spite of us not lifting a finger for ourselves. And so over and over again, we see how these stories whisper what Jesus would do, how he would come and what he would do. And of course, we have the prophets. We could spend all day here talking about the prophets. But let's talk about Isaiah. Isaiah talks about a coming king, but he also talks about a suffering servant. And in Jesus, we find out that they're the same person. I mean, once you hear the story of Jesus, can you read Isaiah 53 in any other way? I mean, I'm sure you you know it. We won't read all of it. But it says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And after he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. I mean, come on. What else is this about? I mean, it sounds like something that Paul would write. It sounds like New Testament. But as Aaron pointed out, Isaiah is writing 700 years before Jesus comes. So we have Old Testament being all about Jesus. And of course, Old Testament spends a lot of time talking about this figure of Messiah. This figure, this from the, the king from the line of David who would come to restore Israel and would redeem and, and rule over the world and re- return goodness once again. And at the time, it seems that, uh, of the first century, it seems that the expectation and the hope of Messiah had reached a fever pitch as the Roman Empire was oppressing Israel. And there were several of these messianic movements at the time. A leader rises up and they get a following. The last of these was a man named Bar Kokhba in the second century. And what would usually happen is they would have a leader, they'd get a following, they'd have this military confrontation with Rome and inevitably the leader would die and the movement would be squashed. And everyone would go home unless they wanted to like appoint a brother as a new um, leader or something. But they didn't seem to expect that the Messiah would die. And we see that in last week's story with um, Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples. They said, we had hoped he would have been the one to restore Israel. The implication being, well, since he's dead, clearly that's not him. But Jesus kind of twists the script on them and says, well, of course Messiah dies. That's Messiah's job. Messiah had to die so that he could rise, so that he could save. And then he opens their minds to the scriptures. So we have this paradigm shift for them as they now understood that Messiah was a dying and rising Messiah. But not only that, they now had a, they were reminded of the fact that he wasn't only Israel's Messiah. You know, they said on the road, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel and as we get into the book of Acts later on in Acts 1, before Jesus' ascension, it seems that the disciples are asking, is now going to be the time he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But here he reminds them, Messiah will suffer and die, um, rise from the dead on the third day, and the repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. 
He's not only Israel's Messiah, he's a worldwide, global Messiah. And he doesn't come with military force and power. He doesn't come to crush his enemies. He comes to offer forgiveness and repentance. You go and tell them forgiveness is available to those who want it. Repentance can be had. Life change can be had for those who come to me. But then we have perhaps the biggest paradigm shift of them all. And I'm going to cheat a little bit by going to next week's passage. As Jesus is about to ascend, it says above the disciples, and they worshipped him. Excuse me, they worshipped him? Worship is, which is meant to be reserved for God, for Yahweh? What are they doing worshipping a man? What sort of incredible event must have happened in order for these disciples who were among the most monotheistic people on the planet to suddenly think it was appropriate to worship a man as if he were Yahweh. So suddenly they have a new paradigm shift, a new understanding of Messiah being a dying and rising Messiah, a Messiah being a worldwide Messiah offering peace, but also a Messiah who shares an identity with Yahweh. The resurrection is incredible. And clearly, resurrection made a difference in the way that the disciples thought of the world, understood the world, and the way they lived their lives. I mean, look at Peter. At the arrest of Jesus, we find Peter swinging swords and cutting off the ear of the servant of the high priest. But Jesus says to him, Peter, no, we're not that type of revolution. But so the disciples scatter, but then Peter follows from a distance. And as Jesus is, you know, under arrest, being questioned, Peter is warming himself by a fire until a little servant girl comes up and asks him, hey, aren't you one of those who was with that guy who's been arrested over there? Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, 15 minutes before, he was swinging swords as a freedom fighter for Israel. Now, this little girl is making him apprehensive. And more come and, and recognize him and say, like, yeah, yeah, you're one of those. Your accent gives you away. Peter says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Three times, Peter denies Jesus. And yet, less than two months later, Peter is in this same city and he is preaching this very message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What must we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized, all of you, you and your households, for the forgiveness of sins. And what makes up a majority of Peter's sermon? The Torah the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, the the Old Testament. Jesus has taught him well. But of course, he did so clothed with power from on high, clothed with the Spirit. And and the effect of this preaching was that thousands of people came to know Jesus that day. It's, It's quite a transformation. It's quite a paradigm shift. But what about us today? What, what difference does 
the resurrection make for us today? Well, I'm sure we could be here for hours listing hundreds of them. But let me zero in on this one. So we're living in this, you know, COVID era. And I imagine that many of us have this sense that we're missing out on things. Things that get canceled, things that we're used to doing that we either can't do or have to do in a modified way. But we feel like we're missing out on something. And put that on top of the fact that in normal everyday life away from COVID, we often have that feeling anyway that, that we're missing out. You know, cultural contemporaries call this FOMO, the F-O-M-O, the fear of missing out. Because our culture tells us, look, you have only one life to live, so you got to make the most of it. So you have to, you know, experience all that you can, squeeze all the juice you can out of life. You know, carpe diem, seize the day. So you have to go and have all the romance and beauty you can in your life. You have to go and see the sights and take these trips. You have to set goals and accomplish all of these things because you don't want regrets on your deathbed. And so we, and look, there, there's nothing wrong with wanting to live an interesting life where cool stuff happens, but sometimes we can get into a panic about it. We, we fret about it. We think, oh, what if I never get to backpack across Europe? You know, what if I never tick these things off of my bucket list? What if I never fall in love? The resurrection says, look, just as Jesus was physical, your future is physical. And you're not missing out on anything. Eternity is not this consolation prize for the life that you didn't get. It's the life that you can't even imagine for yourself. It's so good. I mean, think about the things that we enjoy in this world. We enjoy those in fallen bodies on a fallen creation. Imagine what it's like to enjoy things in an unfallen body in an unfallen creation. So resurrection says, look, all those restaurants that you wanted to try but never got to go to, all those parties that you weren't invited to, those things pale in comparison to the wedding feast of the Lamb. All of the romance you could have experienced in your life pales in comparison to the intimacy, the knowing and being known that you will one day experience in the new creation. The most spectacular views from the tallest buildings or the highest mountain, the, most, uh, the pinkest sunset melting into the ocean is nothing compared to what you will one day witness as heaven and earth are reunited. And you yourselves, you on your best day, when you are at your top physical peak, where you have all this strength and all this energy, and when you're at your mental, mental sharp, sharpest, when you, you are at your most attractive, when you are at your most creative, your most courageous, at your greatest wit, where all your jokes are funny. On your best day, you are a mere shadow of what you one day will be. How's that for resurrection hope? It means you're not, you're not missing out on anything. And so that means... Resurrection means that since this is not the only life we'll have, we don't have to hoard our money and spend on ourselves. We can be sacrificial. We can give our money away. We don't have to be stingy with our time. 
and look at sands through the hourglass in a, in a panic. Oh, no, I'm running out of days. No, you're going to live forever. That means you can give away your time. You can serve others. You can love others. And it means that when life doesn't go your way, you don't have to be despondent. We don't have to look at 2020 as a waste. Resurrection means nothing gets wasted. I think of the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2, where there's a wedding feast and they're running out of wine, which was a huge cultural no-no. That would have brought great shame, embarrassment to the family of the couple. So Jesus turns water into wine, and there's this character called the master of the banquet. And he tries the wine that Jesus made, and he goes to the bridegroom and says, look, usually people serve the best wine first, and once people have had their fill, they bring out the cheap stuff. You saved the best for last. What gives? It seems that there was some part of that day when the master of the banquet thought that he had had all the good wine that he was going to have for that day, and now he was on to the cheap stuff. I can't help but wonder if we think that about our lives, that we've already had the good wine and our best days are behind us. Or maybe we think that our lives is the good wine, and after death we have to settle for the cheap stuff. Resurrection says, no, the best is yet to come. And so... As we celebrate this Christmas season, we, we've talked about a physical resurrection. And what we celebrate at Christmas is a physical incarnation. That God became human. Yahweh became physical. And how do we celebrate that? We celebrate that with physical things. We celebrate with lights and with trees and with presents. And we celebrate with chocolate and cinnamon rolls and beef and cheese and wine. So as you celebrate with those things, thank your creator for his good gifts. But let those things serve as signposts of a new creation and that the best is yet to come. I think of another part of that story of the wedding feast at Cana in John 2. It seems highly possible that Jesus is thinking about his own wedding and his own bride and what he would have to do to rescue her. But going through the cross, as Jesus says to Mary, my hour has not yet come. Every time in the Gospel of John where Jesus says my hour, he's talking about his death on the cross. So to borrow a phrase from a theologian named Edmund Clowney, he says that Jesus sat amongst the joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that we could sit among the sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Jesus sat at the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the sorrow of his death, so that we could sit among the sorrow of this world, sipping the coming joy of resurrection and new creation. What we expect and what we believe about our future will determine how we live and how we experience the present. And if you are experiencing that, if you have resurrection hope, the watching world will get very curious. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you for sending your son as a baby that we could touch. And he became a man and he died and he became resurrected. He was a resurrected man that we could touch. And so I pray, Lord, in this season, in this difficult season of COVID, we would have a resurrection hope knowing that the good wine is still coming. And in that hope, let us have expectation. Let us have hope. Let us have hope that attracts a watching world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.